This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, the US midterms are now history and we all know now that the red wave didn't arrive and we didn't see a blue wave driven by outrage at the Supreme Court's move to overturn almost 50 years of a woman's right to choose. While the Republicans have now flipped the House, they failed to gain the Senate. Normal political cycles in the US would have tipped a big win for the Republicans, then add an unpopular president in the White House and the cost of living pressures to the mix, and at best the midterms were a status quo result for the Republicans. A less charitable reading was that it was a disaster. Why did the red wave fail to materialise? Does the result herald the end of Donald Trump? And has the partisan media in America actually lost its bite? And while we're at it, is Elon Musk a disruptor in this space, social media, or just a naughty boy? And what about this new kid on the block, Semaphore, a new way of doing international journalism? To discuss all of this and more, I'm joined by Ben Smith, American journalist and editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a global news organisation. Previously, Ben was a media columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. So, Ben Smith, thank you very, very much for joining us here on Fourth Estate. Let, let's ju- just uh, jump straight in to um, a fascinating story globally at the moment, which is American politics and the midterms that you've uh, just been through over there. Many predicted a Republican win. Uh, do, do you think media and, and the polls got it wrong? What happened there? Um, you know, the polls mostly got it right. The polls suggested a very close election in which uh, that would produce a tight split. Media, you know, we've had a few years of the polls getting it wrong. And so media assumed the polls got it wrong again in favor of the Democrats. And it's actually in some ways the problem with journalism that is based on polls and then a layer of journalists guesses about the polls. Mm. Um, Which, (laughs) so, and um, and, and I think journalists- Pretty much as well. Yeah, so, so, yeah. So, so I think the, you know, the vibes-based consensus was that, the Democrats were going to lose, um, and was incorrect. And did, the, did did it catch you by surprise? 
Yeah, we all live in, I mean, this is the thing about politics, right? We all sort of like live in the same bubble of conventional wisdom and expectations. And it caught the Democrats by surprise, right? Like you talk to your best White House sources and they say, we think we're going to get creamed. And who are you to argue with that, right? So, mm -hmm. no, it definitely, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think it broadly caught people by surprise. Mm. So, um, you know, what does it tell us, though, about the, and I know that you've thought about this before. I recall reading it somewhere, but what does it tell us about the media's connection with voters? That there, there seems to be this this disconnect between media and voters, not not just in the United States, certainly in Australia as well. Um, but um, so I, I have, I think, you know, I think the you know the media goes through cycles of its understanding of voters and of how to understand voters. I mean, I think my possibly controversial point of view on this is that the media made a religion of polling and sort of decided that it was. It was sort of old fashioned and unscientific to spend a lot of time interviewing people in diners and that you would really just wind up reflecting back the Washington consensus and sort of pretend you'd found it in the diner. And that the thing to do was to be scientific and look at polls, which, by the way, are always quietly adjusted around the pollsters' expectations of who's going to show up, which are mostly driven by who they've interacted with in diners. And I think a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom got filtered into kind of a fake science. Um, and actually, it's pretty useful to have reporters wandering around talking to people, and that went a little bit out of fashion. And part of the reason that I think American journalists missed this cycle was that you know, on Twitter, you see that the person who gets the most attention is the craziest, most divisive, loudest voice. Mm. You know, if you were even paying attention to the television advertising, which is still the main way campaigns are conducted here, you saw candidates airing ads about how they like enjoy pizza, like very, you know, and 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 not necessarily this most screamy and divisive things. And in the end, really, a big part of what happened was that the the candidates who were perceived mostly on the right, but also on the left as being creatures of social media driven movements lost and candidates who were seen as being extremely mainstream figures who don't spend too much time on the internet one. Right. Right. And so, so what, so, so what is that telling you? What's the, what's the take home there for American journalism? Get out in the street. Um, yeah, I actually think, and again, I don't think this is necessarily widely held, but like that the old fashioned reporting, which was sort of embodied and then kind of caricatured in a guy named David Broder, a Washington Post reporter, um, where you go and interview people out in the, you know, and, and bring back your best shot at understanding what's happening based on having talked to a couple hundred people, which is not scientific, that mm. that's a pretty valuable part of journalism. But also there was that said, there was also just a lot to see in the polling that suggested this too. you know, these some of these kind of Trumpy Republican candidates were underperforming in ways that were a little inexplicable. Mm -hmm. um, if you know, and, and understanding that, and, you know, and honestly, like, after every election, there's a big how the media got it wrong, but also the media got a bunch of things right. And mm -hmm. some of this stuff they did see coming and some people saw it coming. But there's a, there's a reporter who works with me named David Weigel, who, you know, he's just on the road. 250 days a year talking to people and you do when you talk to him when you read him that really does inform you know a sense of what's going on that you can't get from twitter yeah 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 and and you know is that a general a, a kind of a, a general belief that's running through semaphore for you that it's really important to have boots on the ground so that you can you eyeball people you you, you use them almost as a bulwark against misinformation 
Um, you know, I, I think misinformation is a funny frame here because, of course, sometimes you run into people who have false beliefs mm. about the world that inform what they're doing. So I'm not sure, I mean, which you could call misinformation or you could call, you know, false or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's not like those people you talk to or often what they'll tell you is what they saw on cable news or what they saw on the Internet. So it's I don't think it's quite that simple. Mm. But at least you're getting the view from what you're getting a, a a direct view of what people actually think in the towns and villages and provinces and yeah. states across the country. And cities. And you can be surprised. You know, people don't really reduce easily to caricature. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw, I remember writing years ago about a, a house in Indiana that had a, that was flying a Confederate flag and had a Barack Obama lawn sign. And, it was, and I were interviewing the, the owners of the house who had weird politics, right? And it's like, what's going on here? And at the time, it really felt like a total curiosity, like so really utterly bizarre. And, you know, and they're, they, I remember the husband saying, well, you know, we're, we, we want change, but I like consider myself a rebellious person. And that's what the Confederate flag means to me. Like, okay. Um, but, you know, but in retrospect, of course, there were a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama and then for Donald Trump, which mm-hmm. feels from a sort of, I don't know, from a lot of the kind of like analysis of politics, like a hard person for journalists to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben, you know, let's, can we talk Joe Biden for a minute? Because, of course, the, um, the, the prior to, just before the election, certainly the American media seemed to be rather um, underestimating his capacity to, to, do any, to do well in this election. But, in fact, not a bad result for the Democrats, not, not glowing, not fantastic, but not bad either. So did did they perhaps underestimate here without wanting to get into the media has done everything wrong and underestimated and, and, and misread things again? But but broadly speaking, is the American media kind of so down on Joe Biden that they might be getting him wrong? Um, I mean, the American people are pretty down on Joe Biden. He's not a wildly popular beloved figure. Mm-hmm. I think, it, but he's also not a hated divisive figure. And I think that was, you know, and, and I think that's, that's not that sort of a boring story right like you see why people aren't writing nobody hates joe biden but that does seem to you know nobody fears joe biden but that does seem to be have been a big element of a campaign in which fear is a big motivator Mm. so okay um in terms of the the power of um of fox news for example which has been you know a reasonably big mover and shaker in the American scheme of things in relation to uh, the, the, the dissemination of kind of far-right ideas. What do you think the results say about the hold of Fox on, on, um, on the American people at this point? I mean, you know, it's a very, very divided country, right? And, and, and the hardest core of the right and of the left spent a lot of time consuming cable television, but very small, you know, very, very small numbers of people. I don't think... I think if 1% of the country watch either Fox or MSNBC on a night, that's a great night for them. Um, so, you know, they, they so, so, and so it does have, it has like, it, it's, it's a thing that kind of controls the political class on the right and drives a lot of the energy on the right, but it's not a mass phenomenon. Um, and I think, I don't know, I don't, so, I, but, but I, but I don't, the, you know, the, the divisions in the country didn't dissipate and Fox certainly remains by far the most powerful right-wing voice. Mm. But when you say that the audience is quite small, I mean, Fox News, 
the Fox News channel averaged the most election night viewers, more than double any other network or channel during during um, prime time. It, it what was, was the number? Do you have it? I don't actually have the exact number, but it was reported by AP News. So, so I, I was wondering what you know what what is happening there? Is it people are are tuning in but ignoring what Fox is telling them, or, or... well, no, I think there. No, I think I think people who are conservative have fewer options, right? CNN, MSNBC, much of the internet are fighting for, you know, ABC, CBS, and NBC are more or less fighting for the same audience. And this is always, in a way, Fox's business insight mm. is that they have a big chunk of the audience for themselves. So I, I don't think that's actually that sort of problematic of much. Not, 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 not it doesn't, I don't think it represents much of a change. That's just how mm. the country is. Right. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. I'm joined by American journalist Ben Smith, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Semaphore, previously a media columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. This week, we're talking about the United States midterm election. Okay, so let's look at Twitter for a moment because there's been lots and lots and lots of white noise happening over there on Twitter with mm-hmm. Musk, Elon Musk's takeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Trump is back, or, or as far as I know, he hasn't yet tweeted, but he's certainly been permitted back onto the platform. And there are folk like you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene who are having um, accounts restored this week. Um, and, and you know, the platform is rejecting the previous operator's attempts to moderate um, and, and remove seditious and overly anti-democratic speech from the platform. You know, do you see that um, this is just Musk being naughty and kind of incendiary or, or is it a real concern? I mean, he's such an unpredictable person and he restored Trump because there was a Trump, the notion of restoring Trump narrowly won a Twitter poll. Yeah. Which I don't, so, you know, I think if he lost the Twitter poll, he wouldn't have restored him. And that itself was a stunt to drive engagement on Twitter. And I think he's, he is certainly operating Twitter. I mean, Twitter has sort of been operating in a way like it was a government mm. and, and trying to sort of like think a lot about the public good. And he is operating Twitter like it is a business. And by the way, a business which has taken on an insane amount of debt and is now, and has gone from being a business that was sort of stumbling along to being a business that's facing a huge crisis, which is of his own making. Um, and running it in his incredibly impulsive and unusual way. So I'm not like, you know, but it's not, but I think, I mean, I think he's doing a lot of these things because he wants to get attention, wants more people to go on Twitter because crazy, exciting things are happening there. Not, and he certainly also is sort of drinking from the, the kind of like, you know, the free speech, conservative ideology, you know, which, which, by the way, says, for instance, do you want random Silicon Valley executives deciding that you're seditious? Like, that's a pretty intense power over the sort of, you know, most important public square in the world to hand over to a random employee of a private company, which yeah, is what yeah. they've done. And, and so I think, you know, I don't think, I don't think it's like an ill, I mean, I think like a lot of people on all sides of these debates say crazy stuff all the time. But I don't think that point of view is kind of fundamentally illegitimate. Yeah, that member, you know, elected members of the U.S. Congress, including, you know, there's 435 members of the U.S. Congress. Five of them are always the craziest five. That those people, despite the fact that they were ultimately elected by the voters in their district, should be denied access to this platform. Again, because based on the decision of a faceless executive at a private company. Mm. Okay, so you, so you you would you would think that he's. 
uh, in your in your mind, has he done the right thing by reopening the platform to people who were previously considered to be, you know, not not in the public interest to be there? Honestly, I think it's totally case by case, and I disagree with some of the calls and agree with others. Um, yeah. I mean, I agree with him. I don't know, like somebody tweeted at him kind of accurately. You know, a true move to to show that you care about free speech only would be to restore Alex Jones, this kind of yeah. incredibly incendiary broadcaster who was banned from, you know, who was owes, I think, a billion dollars to people he lied, whose, whose children's deaths he lied about. Um, and Musk just replied, no. So, I, I mean, and, and so it just seems to me he's trying to do it on a case-by-case basis, which and not on a rule-based way, which is extremely hard to, you know, which, which doesn't exactly scale. So, look, that's, that's a really interesting take. So I'm interested to know what you think, whether whether you think the way he runs it actually makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I don't want to make predictions about it, but it's yeah. it's incredibly risky. Like most social, you know, there's sort of a, enter, there's a tendency of, all sorts of communities, whether it's like a popular nightclub or a popular social network, to go out of fashion and close. And that's always, that's a huge risk with Twitter, with Facebook, I think right now it's kind of unraveling. And it's not for one reason or the other. It's just because it's not cool to be there anymore and people would rather be somewhere else. And it's mm-hmm. very, and, and these are not engineering challenges fundamentally. They're social, political challenges. I think Twitter is, you know, pretty locked into a lot of journalists' lives. And so I don't really see myself leaving, but I could imagine it kind of just becoming a small bulletin board for professional journalists and government officials and everybody else leaving. But you've already seen celebrities and musicians are mostly gone. Mm. Actors don't really on Twitter anymore. Athletes are a big part of Twitter, but, but a lot of them have kind of quietly left. And you kind of don't notice when somebody leaves the party in a way. It's all just kind of French exits, but... Um, but at some point, but, but, you know, but that's the biggest risk, I think. It's just that the, so it, you know, the, the people with huge followings just don't find it worthwhile. And I, I think journalists are pretty stuck and pretty addicted, but, you know, it's, it's an, un, but, but ultimately like if he just jumps up and down on top of this fairly fragile platform enough, it might kind of break and, and not, I don't mean technically, but just kind of socially. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think the the others that have come along that look like their rivals, platforms like Mastodon, um, do they have any hope of competing against a, a platform like Twitter that's so kind of ingrained in the psyche of those at least who use it? Um, so I think that Mastodon is a great example of something that does not. like it Because it's, it's basically if you explore it, it's a... It has a lot of the same features as Twitter, but problems like moderation are much harder, and it and, and it's technically not as slick. So I don't really. It, it's a little hard to. Um, I, I think the notion that Twitter would be replaced by an identical competitor with slightly different moderation policies does not seem likely. You know, might people want to be in smaller communities of like-minded individuals who don't disagree? You know, who um, you know, like that that actually. That that makes more sense to me, right? Like, like you know, like 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 you know, might people move to Discord servers where they're hanging out with people they know and agree with, and and not arguing against people they dislike? Yeah, uh, that could, yeah, I could see that. Um, you know, I think Discord, Slack, Reddit, just people moving into kind of more fragmented, smaller communities. Generally, I think a lot of people have in their real lives moved from public social media to text groups. 
Mm. I feel like everything that happens happens in text groups now. And that's a move in that direction. Right. So, Ben, do you think it's going to be a huge blow to Elon Musk having restored Donald Trump to the platform that, you know, if Trump actually refuses to play in the in the sandpit? Um, no. Mm. I actually think he's, like, gotten the maximum mileage out of Trump by having a poll about whether to let him on. And then actually once he's on, he's a bit of a double-edged sword for the service because, you know, if he kind of comes – again, like – it's like Musk himself. Like right now, it's actually incredibly interesting, at least for me, to watch Musk operate this service in public and have all these crazy decisions happening as you watch. Like it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But like, and he's incredibly smart and incredibly mercurial and unpredictable and screwing things up all over the place. But like, you know, it's, it's like a bar. Like it's really interesting. If some genius sits down at the end of the bar and is just like expounding and has all sorts of theories and is doing weird stuff, like for a while. But at some point, you'd like to hang out with your friends in the bar. And if your friends leave because this guy is dominating the conversation, you will ultimately leave. And I think there are these, it's like a social, um, it's a social network, right? Like it's, and and so I think the kind of bigger challenges aren't really technical. They're really like, is this a place you're going to want to hang out? Yeah, yeah. So, so Musk, Musk might be uh, best off just getting out of his own way and shutting up for a little bit, at well, least. Who, I mean, who knows? Right now, he's just sort of lighting it on fire and watching it burn. It's really, and everyone is finding it highly entertaining to watch. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And look, briefly, Trump, um, you know, his announcement was very, very low key, was very flat. Um, Fox News, I think, even cut away from it, although the ABC in Australia, I should uh, tell you, actually stuck with it. Um, do you think Do you think he's, he's, he's finished? Is he yesterday's man? Or are we really quite foolish to write him off? Uh, you are quite foolish to write him off. Yeah. <laughs> I would say he's the extra, very popular and divisive former president who I agree, like, doesn't seem to have caught fire and his heart doesn't seem to be into it, but I suspect he'll get he'll he'll manage to summon. He's also you know, quite a bit older than he was when he last ran, mm-hmm. eight years, long time. Um, but I I think he'll uh, I suspect he will ultimately summon the energy. And and if he is the Republicans' nominee, how should the media treat and cover him this time? And how will Semaphore cover him? I don't quite understand the question. If he's the Republican nominee, how do you think the media should? Uh, there was criticism of the way the media covered him the first time around in 2016 that it was kind of yeah. The media gave him a sort of open platform and treated him sometimes as an entertaining an entertainer who couldn't win. Um, but I also I'm a little tired of the notion that the, that he's fundamentally the fault of the media. Like at this point, you know, I think most American voters are pretty familiar with who he is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them really like him, like a majority of Republicans. I don't think that's because of the media coverage. Like, I think that's because they like him. So how how will you cover him? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we've been we've been covering him very aggressively. So we broke the story today about how afraid Republicans are that he will mount a third party bid. I mean, I, I, we will certainly not repeat lies verbatim. Nobody yeah. should. But. Um, yeah, but that but I think we'll cover him like we will, you know, we'd cover any other story. 
I have to say I'm quite enjoying Semaphore. So congratulations on the effort. I know it's been a long time in the making. But you'd previously told Vanity Fair that one of the aims of Semaphore was to disrupt partisan divides and find a global audience. How are you getting people out of their silos? Are you getting people out of their silos? You know, I think we have a lot to work on. I would love your your listeners' feedback. But we are really what we're really trying to do is cover the news in a way that acknowledges that there's room for legitimate disagreement if you can get to a place where there are shared facts. And, and I think if you look at our articles, if you look at our newsletters, you'll see elements that are really saying, you know, here's my, and we're trying to be really transparent. Like I reported this story, here's what I think it means, but I could be wrong and here's somebody else's analysis. And, and we're trying to be, you know, just signal and really live a kind of openness to disagreement that I think is, that social media really discourages, but I think people are really hungry for and, and what's the feedback been like? Are, you, are your audience getting back to you and telling you that they're liking this or not liking this? Everyone loves it. Um, no, I've, <laughs> yeah, it's been really positive. I mean, I think we were really scared. You know, it's, you're always nervous putting a new thing out in the public. And I think we found that people are really are really responding to that element in particular, that sense, which, you know, we, haven't all, we don't always get exactly right. But that sense that we're trying to give you the facts, be transparent about what we think about them, but also be like humble about how much we know and how often we're right. Mm. It's interesting that there have been, you know, so many startups in the media world. Some have lasted the distance and others have toppled. You, of course, were at, at BuzzFeed, which was one of the, the more infamous and famous um, uh, startups in the world. What did you learn there that you're bringing to Semaphore that's making a difference, do you think? Um, I mean, I think I learned all sorts of things. I was there for eight years and certainly learned, you know, the extent to which great quality news, great scoops, can kind of fight their way into the conversation if they're from an outlet that you've never heard of before. You also certainly learned a lot about remaining disciplined about spending money in a startup, I would say. And we're trying to be really careful and really, you know, and really build a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I learned was about, you know, BuzzFeed was this incredible entertainment company that we kind of grafted a news organization onto and that worked for a while. And then the environment changed and the audience wanted those things to be more separate after 2016. And we, we you know, made a bunch of mistakes and also struggled to adjust. Um, I think here, you know, I, we have a small team. We're very, very focused on news. We're a news company. That's totally our DNA. Our business is entirely built around quality news. And that's a big difference and something I'm really enjoying. I mean, obviously, it's 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 very difficult for startups, particularly in the digital age, to kind of balance out tech and content. And uh, I mean, I've ha- have heard it uh, written by many a, a journalism scholar that it's important to not only keep lean but keep an eye on what you're providing. That is, that you're providing actual news content and not you're not a tech company with all the kind of different bells and whistles that make it lovely for people to look at. Uh, although I have to say, I think your site is actually quite attractive. But um, thank you. It's 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 some people. A lot of people really like it, and some people really hate it. And I do think that means that's because we've invested a lot in design and taken a risk. You know. Yeah. Um, so. But so, in terms of balancing out the tech and the content, I mean, you know, we what's the what's the belief at Semaphore at the moment? Is is all of your effort, all the money going into content, or is it is there a balancing act happening here? You know, we we are we're a news company. We're not a tech company, and we're very clear out about that. But we have. But that said, we have great technologists, a great CTO who's one of the named Mark Wilkie, who's one of the um, who build a lot of of, of internet media. 
Um, he, he, he worked on early Gawker, early HuffPost, was BuzzFeed CTO, and really the site has been incredibly stable and fast in a way that is not true of startups I've been at before. And we have a great product lead who came from Wirecutter. So I think we, you know, we, we, we are a news company, but we really believe in quality tech and product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and also, but in in terms of your core journalistic belief, it's in nonpartisanship, right? Is that the? Am I right in summarising it that way? Um, we certainly don't want to be partisan, but uh, but I think like I mean, but I also think we're not trying to sort of position ourselves entirely around you know around a partisan environment. Like we're just trying to be honest about what we think and, and where there's room for disagreement around the news. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, what does semaphore mean? It's an old word that refers to, um, it's an old Greek word that refers to the bearer of a signal. And what we really loved about it is it's the same, versions of it are the same word in you know, 50 or 60 languages around the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, in terms, can I, before I let you go, I just want to come, I just want to swing back, if I might, to this question of Donald Trump in, in terms of the possibility of, of him running, do you seriously entertain the possibility? I can I can understand how people might think that the Republicans might opt for him to be their candidate. Do, do you seriously entertain the possibility that the American people, divided as your country is at the moment, might um, might go that way again? Of course, yeah. I mean, I think you know, I think he won before; he could win again. I don't see why not. Um, and I definitely have like learned to not predict the outcomes of U.S. elections. But I feel like that was my big personal lesson from 2016. Ben, thank you very, very much for talking to us. And um, we hope to have you on the show again sometime. Great. It's really nice to talk to you. And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, to whom we offer our thanks for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.